The last pagan emperor of Rome was Flavius Claudius Julianus. He died in 364 AD, and his dying words were revealing. You have conquered Galilean. Julian's quote was a reference to Jesus and an admission of defeat. For the emperor realized that in just 300 years, Christianity had overwhelmed paganism and had prevailed as the leading religion of the empire. Pagan Rome had become Christian Rome. And yet now, who would have thought that today, in the early 21st century, we'd be witnessing a revival of ancient Roman paganism? It's making a comeback. Realize paganism is an attempt to tap into and manipulate the power of God without any real allegiance to God. It's an amoral spirituality. It requires no love for God or loyalty to God. In paganism, there's no such thing as truth or orthodoxy or right belief. God is reduced to a cosmic blessing dispenser. You just plug in the right prompts and you get out the desired result. Today, paganism goes by other titles like the New Age or New Spirituality or Postmodern Spirituality. It claims various spiritual techniques for self-betterment like meditation and good karma and centered breathing and positivity and astrology and crystals and visualization and on and on it goes. Paganism promises an esoteric or divine knowledge apart from the Bible and from Christianity. And yet remember the words, the wise words of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun. We'll learn today that much of what is our modern spirituality was also found in the confused first century town of Colossae. The Bible exposes the New Age religion as not new at all. The New Age is really just a repackaging of an old lie. Well, chapter 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and to Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossae was a small Greek village in what is today western Turkey. It rested on a hill 200 miles upriver from Ephesus. Colossians was the only letter that Paul wrote to people that he had never visited. The church in Colossae was probably a byproduct of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. One of the converts was a man from Colossae named Epaphras. After he became a Christian, Epaphras went home to start a church in his town. The Colossians' faith flourished until false doctrine put a chokehold on their growth. Pastor Epaphras, himself a new Christian, realized he needed help. And so he traveled a thousand miles to Rome to consult with the Apostle Paul. So, from a Roman prison, Paul pins this defense of Christian orthodoxy while dissecting the Colossian heresy, a form of paganism later called Gnosticism. Well, he continues in verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And here is the greatest gift you can give someone. Prayer. 
Paul was praying for these Colossians. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Notice, faith, hope, love. Commentator R.C. Lucas, he refers to faith, hope, and love as apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. These are the marks of a real relationship with God, faith, hope, and love. The Colossians were flirting with dangerous doctrine, but this didn't nullify the good and godly in them. Paul saw their problems, but he also saw their potential. And so he writes to correct, but first he acknowledges what was right. I see your faith, your hope, and your love. And then in verse 6, the Colossians had rested their hope on the gospel. Paul says, Of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. What an amazing statement. The gospel had come to all the world. The year was 62 AD when Paul wrote. Just 30 years had elapsed since Jesus' resurrection. Of course, this was before the days of motorized travel and printing presses and radio and film and the internet. Jesus had left the gospel in in the hands of a few fishermen all gathered in an upper room there in Jerusalem. What kind of progress would you have expected them to make? Well, amazingly, in just three decades, no corner of the Mediterranean world had been untouched by the gospel. In verse 6, Paul writes that everywhere it went, it was bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. The gospel is the most powerful force on the planet. Everywhere the gospel is embraced, spiritual fruit results. And then he says in verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And pay attention to how Paul prays for these Colossians. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Now, usually when we pray for someone, we pray for their physical health. Maybe their happiness. Our praying focuses on their material welfare. But notice when Paul prays, he prays for their spiritual condition. Not for frills, but that they would know God's will. Not to walk safely, but to walk worthy. Not for fluff, but for fruit. Not for an increase in income, but for an increase in insight. Not for possessions, but for power. Can I say, if you ever pray for your pastor, please mimic Paul's prayer for the Colossians? This is how I want you to pray for me. Also pray for all patience and long-suffering with joy. You know, we need to ask God to help us endure difficulty, but not begrudgingly, with a smile, with some joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us 
to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. None of us are on probation with God. In Christ, we are fully qualified now to partake of his blessings. For he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The image here is of a victorious general who relocates his defeated foes. And likewise, we have been conquered by Jesus. Thus, he transfers us from darkness into the rule of his love. And then he says in verse 14, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Christianity vanquished Roman religion for it satisfied a need in the human heart that paganism could never touch. See, the Greek gods were cruel and vindictive. They hurled thunderbolts down from Mount Olympus. A Roman would sacrifice to his gods to keep them off his back and out of his life. But this Christian God hung on a cross because he loves us and because he wants to see us forgiven. His desire is to set us free and restore us to what we were meant to be. This kind of love was irresistible. And it defeated the pagan beliefs of Rome just as it will triumph over every force today that opposes it. Yes, you have conquered, Galilean. Well, Paul is getting ahead of himself here a bit. Before he extols what Jesus did, he first expounds on who Jesus is. And from verses 15 to 19, Paul provides for us one of the Bible's most majestic descriptions of the deity of Christ. In fact, if we were reading here in the original language, we'd notice a rhythm. Scholars believe that these verses made up a well-known hymn that was sung in the early church. Apparently, these truths were so vital to Paul that he set them to a catchy beat so that they would be easier for his readers to remember. And each of Paul's points here corrects a heresy being preached in the church at Colossae. It shoots down another pagan assertion. Thus, to appreciate what Paul is teaching, we need to first understand what he's fighting. You see, one of the pagan ideas being taught in Colossae was that of dualism. See, Romans believed that both good and evil were eternal. The material world is evil, while the spiritual world is good. And thus, since God is spirit and holy, he could never handle anything material or evil. And of course, this complicated his creation. Since the creator couldn't touch anything tangible, he created by proxy, or so they taught. That God sent out emanations or personifications of himself to do the dirty work of creation. These reverberations or these revelations of God were like a rock splashing into a lake and creating ripples. Each ripple was a little less divine than the one before it until finally a ripple evolved that didn't even know God. It was completely evil and thus it could create the world. The heretics in Colossae, they believed that the pleroma, as they called it, or the fullness of God, the divine essence, that which makes God God, had sort of been chopped up like a fine pepper and sprinkled out over the entire religious spectrum. This made Jesus just one of many emanations. 
along with other gods and other angels and gurus and holy men. The Colossians said that nothing was truly unique about Jesus of Nazareth. He was just one of many links to God. The heretics believed that God could be found anywhere in anything. Sounds like today's paganism, doesn't it? And because spirit is good and matter is evil, if Jesus was the Son of God, then he could never create the physical universe or inhabit a fleshly body. This is why the heretics oppose the humanity of Jesus. Realize no one living in the first century would have ever denied that Jesus lived. There was too much evidence to support his historicity, his actual existence. But they said that Jesus came as a ghost or as a phantom. They concocted fanciful tales of Jesus walking on the beach but leaving no footprints. That he didn't actually inhabit a fleshly human body. Of course, John addressed those lies when he wrote 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus did come in human flesh. John touched him, he said. Later, John directly joins Paul in refuting the heresy that was infecting Colossae. He says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And we can see where this heresy was going. For if Jesus didn't come in flesh and blood, he couldn't have been crucified. And thus the false teachers in Colossae had denied the role of the cross in salvation. This is why Paul wrote in verse 14 of redemption through his blood. Rather than salvation by the cross of God's only son, the heretics in Colossae, they believed that salvation came through spiritual enlightenment. Or through gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. They taught that a person needed the hidden knowledge of God's many emanations. In later years, the Colossian lie grew into a heretical system called Gnosticism. Jesus was not the end-all revelation of God, but merely a starting point in a person's quest for spiritual discovery. They rejected Jesus as Lord. Like neo-pagans today, the Colossians, and then later the Gnostics, were looking for God in all the wrong places. And so in verse 15, Paul counters the falsehood that he found, he's hearing about in Colossae with a magnificent portrait of the truth about Jesus. He begins, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The term image here means exact representation. Not just alike in form, but also in substance. See, a stone statue is similar in shape to its human subject. But stone isn't flesh, is it? The two objects are not comprised of the same stuff. Likewise, Jesus was not only God's lookalike. He was of the same substance as the Father, Paul is saying. What God is, Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. His exact representation. And he is the firstborn over all creation. Later, the chief Gnostic theologian would be a heretic named Arius. In the third century, Arius used this verse to infer that Jesus was a created being and not truly divine. 
Arius said Jesus was firstborn. Thus, to be born meant he was created. And if created, he couldn't be the creator. And if not the creator, then he wasn't God. Today's Jehovah's Witnesses echo this Arian heresy. But the early church fathers at the Council of Nicaea, headed by Athanasius, corrected this false doctrine. Athanasius explained that the term firstborn referred more to status than to birth order. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 called Jacob the firstborn, even though he was born after Esau. In Jeremiah 31 verse 9, Ephraim is firstborn over his older brother Manasseh. Biblically speaking, firstborn wasn't a reference to birth order. It was a reference to title and authority and preeminence. Thus, as firstborn over all creation, Jesus is not part of God's creation, but he is over it all. Jesus occupies first position. In NASCAR terms, Jesus sits on the pole, man. Jesus is the CEO of all God's creation. Verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. What we can see through either microscope or telescope was created by Jesus Christ. As one theologian puts it, there is not a square inch of creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this belongs to me. And I love the next line. All things were created through him and for him. Have you ever wondered why you were created? Why do I exist? Well, here we're told we were created through Jesus and for Jesus. You know, if I drove my truck into the ocean, I wouldn't get very far. Because my truck was not made for underwater travel. If I drove my truck off a cliff, I would crash. For my truck was not made for in-air flight. But on the freeway, my truck does just fine because that's what it was designed to do. And likewise, you were not designed to simply work and play and party and earn and spend, and save, and sex, and sleep, and eat, and toil, and try, and sweat, and cry, and eventually die. You were designed for more. You were created for Jesus. And you will never know real fulfillment apart from a relationship with him. Never. Verse 17. And Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things consist. Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but he is its sustainer. He holds it all together in the palm of his hand. Collins' Law of Physics states that like charges repel. And yet at the nucleus of every atom, there is a cluster of protons with like charges. What binds them together? What holds them together? What is this mysterious atomic glue? Well, the Bible says it's Jesus, that he holds all things together. And not just atomically, he's holding my life and my family and my sanity 
in my schedule, in my health, in my ministry together. Trust me. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 tells us that one day the elements will melt with fervent heat. I believe in the future the sustainer Jesus is just going to release his grip. And the entire physical universe is going to vaporize. And it will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Who is the head of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain? (laughs) Not the pastor. Not the elders. Not the congregation. Not even the church secretary, mind you. Jesus is our CEO. And why wouldn't we want him to be? I'm a human with clay feet. He's God. I can't get grass to grow in my front yard. He is the creator. I get tired walking up a steep hill. He sustains all things. Jesus is the head of our church, and aren't we glad? Who is the beginning The firstborn from the dead. In the Bible, numerous people were miraculously raised from the dead. But Jesus is the only person resurrected never to die again. He has overcome death. That in all things, Jesus may have the preeminence. Add it all up. And Jesus isn't a ripple from the original splash. He is the big splash. Jesus is the rock. And he needs to be treated as such. Stop playing games with Jesus. Stop toying around with the Son of God, my word. Look on the top shelf of your life. And if there's anything other than Jesus there, knock it off, man. It's where he alone belongs. Clear off that top shelf. It makes certain nothing is crowding out or rivaling your loyalty to Jesus. Jesus isn't just a slice of the pizza we call life. Jesus is the cheese that covers all of the pizza. Like I like to say, Jesus is the big cheese. (laughs) Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That word fullness Again, it's the Greek term pleroma. The heretics taught that the fullness or the essence of God had been sprinkled out over all of creation. But Paul says, no, it's found in one place. In fact, one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sum total of all that is God. The knowledge of God isn't scattered about. It's in Christ. And by him to reconcile all things to himself... By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. As I explained, Greek dualism rejected the idea of God assuming human flesh. And yet the wages of sin is death. So to pay sin's debt, Jesus needed a body and a body that could bleed. For it's by his blood that he reconciles us to God. Verse 22, to present you. Remember, you're the one that was the enemy. 
his enemy. You were alien and hostile to him. And yet he bore shame and pain so that he could now present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus suffered shame so that he could present you to God holy and blameless. How amazing is that? If, and yes, there is an if. According to verse 23, our salvation is conditional. It's if indeed you continue in the faith. What is God's requirement for us to be saved? It's not just faith. We're to continue in that faith. See, faith is not a one-time profession. It's an attitude in which I persist. This verse and others like it teach that saving faith isn't just a faith that believes once and then expires. It's a faith that keeps on believing. True faith perseveres. Believers continue in their faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then he says in verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now here's a hotly debated verse. Roman Catholics use verse 24 to foster the idea of purgatory. That in purgatory we suffer for sins done in this life to purify ourselves for heaven. Meaning that the cross of Christ isn't sufficient alone for our salvation. Thus we have to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And yet this is surely not the proper interpretation. For on the cross, what did Jesus say? He said of his sufferings and of our salvation, it is finished. The only suffering Jesus still endures is the persecution aimed at his own body, which is the church. You recall when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he ask him? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul was hassling the church, but Jesus took it personally, didn't he? And this is how he still suffers. Not physically, not directly, not actually, but Jesus suffers empathetically. When believers suffer for Jesus' sake, he suffers with them. And in suffering for him, we share or we fill up the afflictions of Christ. And so Paul speaks of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which was been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here is the mystery that God revealed to the church through Paul which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here is the mystery that I hope you now realize, that Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And this is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Christianity is not a philosophy that I learn. It's not a set of rules that I obey. It is an occupation of the human soul. Christ lives in me. It's not imitation, but impartation. You know, I can watch LeBron James dunk a basketball a million times. And I'll still never be able to do it myself. I'm never going to play basketball like LeBron through careful imitation. But what if you took the spring out of LeBron's legs and put them into my legs? <laughs> Impartation. At least I'd be dominating 50 and overs. <laughs> and likewise, it's impossible for me to consistently live the Christian life by simple imitation. If I don't have it in me, friend, I'm not going to consistently live it out. Neither are you. Christianity is more than imitation. It's Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. Paul adds in verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The term perfect means mature. Paul isn't saying that we'll be flawless, but we can grow up. We can lay aside deception and we can walk in truth. This was Paul's goal for the Colossians. He says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And then he says in chapter 2, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh... In other words, Paul had never met these readers personally. He's writing here to believers in sister churches, I'm sorry, sister cities. Colossae and Laodicea were both in close proximity, right down the road from each other. And he's assuming that they're going to share this one letter amongst each other. He hopes that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, the heretics in Colossae claim that they were the secret keepers of God's mysteries. But Paul says that the riches and wisdom of God are found not in some elite group, but in Christ. In whom? In Christ are hidden all the treasures. I remember reading the story of a tycoon, William Randolph Hearst. He was an art connoisseur with a vast collection of paintings. One day, thumbing through a magazine, he saw an exquisite masterpiece. He coveted it. He sent out his aide, armed with millions of dollars, to purchase this painting and to add it to his collection. Well, after an extensive search, his aide returned with the painting. Hearst asked him, he said, wow, how much did it cost us? His aide replied, nothing. We found it in our warehouse. He had possessed the painting all along, but had no idea. And so it is with many believers. In Christ, we have all God's riches and wisdom. Friends, we are complete in Christ. Yet we listen to false teachers who tell us the opposite. 
make us feel deficient. Verse 4, he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Have you been deceived by persuasive words? You know, deceivers use big terms. They use sophisticated arguments that sound impressive. Don't be gullible. Lofty language doesn't make it true. Years ago, a junior hire won first prize at a science fair by showing how conditioned people are to believe anything labeled science. In his project, he urged folks to sign a petition demanding strict controls over the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. And for numerous reasons. He said it leads to excessive sweating. It's a major component in acid rain. It causes severe burns in its gaseous state. It triggers erosion. It decreases the effectiveness of automobile brakes. It's found in cancerous tumors. People were alarmed. 86% of the folks agreed with the ban. Yes, no one should use dihydrogen monoxide. Only one person realized dihydrogen monoxide is another name for water. (laughs) Hey, just because someone uses spiritual sounding verbiage in holy hype doesn't make it true. Complicated and convoluted is not the same as deep. Trust me. If an idea is not clearly taught in the pages of your Bible, reject it, no matter how spiritual it might sound to you. Paul continues, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Understand, Christian maturity is being rooted in the basics. It's learning to walk in simple faith. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. Yet rather than stick with the truth about Jesus, the Colossian heretics, they collected a diversity of spiritual experiences. They thought Christianity was just the beginning of opening up your spiritual horizons. Like people today, they sampled elements of various religions and sort of built a faith that suited their own tastes. Theirs was a cafeteria faith, a buffet religion. Rather than possess a pure faith, they arrogantly created an eclectic faith. They concocted their own spiritual smorgasbord of different things that they liked. It included some Eastern mysticism and some Jewish legalism and a little Roman aestheticism. See, they felt that they had outgrown Christianity. There are people like that today. And yet Paul writes, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. See, this new spirituality originating in Colossae was steering believers away from simple faith in Christ. And in doing so, it was cheating them out of a real relationship with God. Don't let anybody cheat you. Hey, I've been a Christian now 
for over 45 years. And the deepest truth I have ever learned is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's right. It's a lie to think you have to go beyond Christ to grasp God's wisdom and treasure. Any ritual or philosophy or tradition or spirituality that exalts itself above Jesus is a ripoff from Satan. For in him, Paul says, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Rather than sprinkling out the pleroma, the essence of God across creation, God put all the eggs of revelation in one basket. Paul says all of God is found in Christ. And if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, then you have all access to everything God through faith in Jesus Christ. You never have to go outside of Christ. You are complete in him. So much so that no ritual, no good deed, no experience can add to that status. Now the Colossians were non-Jews or Gentiles, but the false teachers were Jewish. And they majored on rules and rituals. Thus legalism was part of their heretical mix, especially circumcision. In the Old Testament, God required his people, the Jews, to circumcise all males as a symbol of their commitment to him. It's really interesting. At the primary pleasure, the, at the primary physical pleasure center of a man's life, he bore a mark of loyalty to his God. This was God's wisdom. But the false teachers in Colossae were now making physical circumcision mandatory for Gentile believers. And Paul objects to this, verse 11. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christians don't need to be physically marked, for there is a spiritual circumcision, Paul says. A circumcision made without hands occurs when Christ transforms our desires, when his spirit cuts back our physical longings and instills in us the love of God. For Christians today, this gets illustrated in baptism. Paul writes in verse 12, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Baptism is now the symbol of what circumcision foreshadowed. The old life is cut off in circumcision as it is buried in baptism. We rise in new life in Christ. And then he says in verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he is taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our salvation occurred at the cross. When a person was nailed to a Roman cross, the tribunal also nailed a list of the victim's crimes, the laws that he had violated. 
And here Paul says that the entire Jewish law was nailed to Jesus' cross. Jesus died to satisfy all its demands. And in so doing, he put an end to the law so that we would never be guilty of breaking it again. He ended life for us under the law. Thus, it's no longer the rules that make us right with God, but it's faith in Jesus. Are you living by rules or are you living by faith? When Kathy and I got married, we didn't agree to a list of rules. We didn't sign on to a set of laws. She didn't sign up to always scratch my back at night. Nor did I agree to always take out the garbage. We took a vow to live in a committed, loving relationship and to give our all to each other, not follow a set of laws. Now she does scratch my back. I hope she's going to do it tonight. And I do take out the garbage. I'm definitely going to do it tonight. But we do it not because of some rule. It's because of our hearts, our love for each other. And this is how God wants us to now live. Not by rules, but in a committed relationship with his son Jesus. See, a lot happened on the cross. Verse 15 also tells us. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross was God's decisive blow against Satan. Jesus disarmed the devil, stripped him of his authority. Now the only power Satan has is what we allow him to have. When a Roman general returned from victory, he led his defeated foe in tow. His enemy was made a spectacle, a trophy of that general's triumph. And that's what happened to Satan. Remember, he fell because he refused to glorify God. Yet at the cross, his defeat did just that. The cross glorified Jesus as supreme and as Lord over all. So put your faith in Jesus. Not in certain days and in different diets. Verse 16 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon, or Sabbath, and people will try. They'll say, if you don't keep this date, if you don't follow this diet, you're not pleasing to God. Seventh-day Adventists teach that if you don't worship on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, you're headed to hell. Paul says we should know better. What we eat and when we worship doesn't get us closer to God. We cross over from death to life, from wrong to right. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The feast days and diet of Judaism were pictures of the work of Christ. Symbols that pointed us to the Messiah. In verse 17, Paul refers to them as a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. You know, when I finally get home after a long trip, I don't hug and kiss Kathy's shadow. I hug the real thing, man. I snuggle up with the real deal. If I only hug Kathy's shadow, you'd think I was a shady person. <laughs> and the same is true with people who get caught up in observing specific days or diets. They're focusing on the shadow, 
Man, hug the Savior, not the symbol. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. The Gnostics taught that angels were also ripples in God's revelation. But Paul sees an obsession with angels as a distraction. All of God is found in Christ, not angels, he says. People fixated on angels are intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. We're complete in Christ. Grow in him. You know, sadly, some Christians are prone to tangents. They always take it a tangent. Walking with Jesus is just never enough for them. Have you met people like this? They always need a hobby horse. They're fascinated with angels, or they're into fasting, or feasting. or well, They always got some kind of little add-on. Don't ever fall for that. Keep Jesus the main thing. Never regulate Jesus to a secondary role. Don't let anybody cheat you from walking in simple faith in Jesus. He says in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That's the language of legalism right there. Don't fall for that. Which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Hey, if we're saved by Christ, don't live by do's and don'ts. Live unto Christ. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there are a lot of ways that you can appear spiritual without really being spiritual. Religion is a stage on which you can show off spiritually without actually being more loving and more kind. Just depriving oneself, just feigning humility doesn't produce true godliness. If you really want to please God and live a righteous life, trust Jesus. Walk in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Never forget, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. May our whole world revolve around him. May our lives, may our affections, may our love, may our ambitions, may all that we are revolve around him. For he is the key, the source. We were created by him and for him. And so, Lord, I pray our simple prayer, everyone here, our simple prayer is help us walk closer to Jesus. We love you, Lord. Fill our hearts to overflowing this morning. And, Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, doesn't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that they'd come to know him today. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.